Have you ever had to leave home? Not necessarily the home of your parents, but this island we call home. Or maybe you weren't the one who left. Maybe you had to watch others go. Maybe you waved them off at the airport and wondered when they would ever return. Or maybe the people who left are the reason you were born where you are. Maybe your home is a place you have never been to, but it calls out to you. A part of those journeys which is never forgotten isn't the taking off or landing. It's the final step of no return. The point that you step over which means life will never be the same again. What does this moment feel like? What does it sound like internally? It's the story of a woman from Cork which answers these questions for us. This is her story. In 1874, in County Cork, a child was born. Her name was Annie Moore. Annie was the oldest of three children born to their parents, Matthew and Julia. Her two brothers were Anthony and Philip. At the time Annie was born, and in the early years on Earth, Ireland was an island spinning in the turmoil of its history and its future. Across the island, those who remained after the famine years were tormented with what they had seen during that dreadful genocide, and tortured by what they were forced to do to survive. Those who were lucky enough to raise the funds to get off the island carried the guilt of who and what they had left behind, in the knowledge they would never return home again. The stories passed down to the survivors' children infested in their hearts and minds new ideas of revolution and fight. After being beaten to its knees and near extinguished, the Celtic heart of the island was slowly starting to beat again. It was weak, but soon it would ring out across the world. The Celtic revival was picking up pace as our language, our sports and our traditions were being reborn from the ashes of what we once knew. The likes of Charles Stuart Parnell were now seizing power from the crown in favour of home rule. Riots were breaking out in Dublin and Belfast as Unionists began to fear the freedom of Ireland. For many in Ireland, however, the progress towards ultimate freedom was too slow and they had lives of their own to be living. As a result, even though food had returned to Ireland, opportunities to not live as a pauper were few and far between for those living in rural areas. This was the case for Annie and her family, 
as whilst she was still a young child, both her parents left the family home in the hope of a better life in America. Her parents had left to try and create a life for their family in Manhattan. Times were tough for them here. Many of the Irish who landed in America here were often robbed of their belongings on their first day. Those who robbed them would pretend to help with their bags and then take off. The cities gobbled up many of the Irish. The busy streets of New York and Boston were no place for farmers and tradespeople who had no concept of major cities. Knowing only small villages and towns, they were not mentally or emotionally equipped to fully understand how a concrete jungle came to be. Thankfully, in the ghettos around these cities, the Irish had made their own communities. Those who had arrived during the famine years had set up homes and safe houses for their countrymen and women to help them to settle. Rooms were often shared between families and diseases would break out, but they were trying their best. Irish gangs formed and everyone understood the value of looking after their own. Matthew and Julia saved as much as they could while their children remained in Cork. For four years they were apart. When the time came for them to be able to afford it, they sent money back to their children with instructions. The instructions were simple. Take the money to Queenstown, now called Cove, and purchase three tickets for the Guian Line steamship Nevada. As well as this was the instruction to lie about Annie's age so she could get a child's ticket instead of paying as an adult. Annie registered as being 15 years old when in fact she was 17. On the morning of December 20th, 1891, Annie packed everything she had into a small carrier bag. All her worldly possessions into a bag no bigger than one which today we might use for groceries. Everything she had stuffed in. That evening, Annie and her brothers, Anthony who was 15 and Philip 12, went to Cove and boarded a small boat. This carried them out to the large steamship Nevada, which was too big to come into the harbour. They were brought along the side of the ship, which was bigger than anything Annie had seen before in her life. When they were hoisted up onto the ship, they found they had entered a very strange world. 
few people apart from the crew were English speakers. The ship had travelled across the ports of Europe and was carrying Italians, Armenians, Slovakians, Germans and others. Annie and her brothers were told their tickets were for the third class area of the ship and they were pointed in that direction. When Annie got there she saw two different versions of the human experience. Some people were giddy at the prospect of the opportunities which waited in America. They were singing, dancing and drinking around the clock. The others were huddled into corners, nervous of what was to come, fearful of the new world they were heading to, hopeful that their sacrifices to this point were worth it. Annie and her brothers huddled together for the 12 days at sea. Crashing over large waves in the Atlantic, they were fearful of the sea and its power. It pushed the ship around and those inside were knocked by the ocean's power as it relentlessly insisted that they did not belong at sea. Christmas Day came as they were on the boat. No great celebrations or presents this year. Just friendly nods at the other passengers in acknowledgement of the day they should be celebrating. On New Year's Eve, Annie heard a large horn bellow from up on deck. It vibrated through the ship as it announced the first sighting of New York City. Annie ran to the window to try and look out. The elbows and pushes from the other passengers made it difficult but with the help of her brothers she forced her way to a window. From there she saw, staring back at her from a distance, was a large statue of a woman holding a flame above her head. The Statue of Liberty was welcoming Annie to the New World. A great joy and relief swept through Annie. By the time the ship came near its drop-off point in the harbour, it was too late to start letting passengers off. The immigration offices had closed. As well as this, new offices were opening in the morning to manage the large number of immigrants landing in America. That night, Annie and her brothers waited on the ship, parked up on peaceful waters. At 10.30am on New Year's Day, the 1st of January 1892, a flag on the newly opened Ellis Island dipped three times. This signalled that it was now open to accept passengers. 
as the ships waiting saw this, the cheers of the crowds were drowned out by the foghorns, clanging bells and steam horns. There was a tremendous excited but nervous energy in the air. As they cheered and celebrated, barges came out to the Nevada to begin ferrying in the passengers. They were decorated in the red, white and blue of America. Third class were first to leave the boat as they could be easily assessed without disrupting the first class passengers. Annie and her brothers were loaded onto a barge and shuttled under the watchful eye of the Statue of Liberty as her shadow guided them into their new home. They were bundled off the barge on the mainland and it set off to get more passengers. Annie was left standing facing two enormous double doors in front of a three-story building. The doors opened and a large staircase faced her. In a glorious haze of joy, Annie and her brothers ran at the stairs. Holding hands, they ran up, skipping two steps at a time. When they reached the top, a man pointed at them to turn left and they entered a room with ten aisles set up and desks at the top of each. As they did, others from the ship began arriving into the room. They saw the queues filling up and decided to join one quickly. The desks were still not open, but the queues and the room began to become very busy. As they waited, Annie watched as the boat workers came through the building. Near the desks she spotted a very large longshoreman. He was a large, broad man with massive hands. He spotted Annie looking at him, walked over to the queue and with his large arms he formed a path in the crowd. Then in a deep Irish accent he announced, ladies first, ushering Annie and her brothers to the front of the line. When she reached the top of the queue, Annie saw the desk workers taking their seats and preparing for their day's work. It was in this moment that Annie realised what she was about to do. She understood the second she steps forward to that desk she would be saying goodbye to home. Goodbye to Cork and goodbye to Ireland. She understood she would never again see her friends from home. Her family left behind would now just become letters and postcards. The green fields and open spaces where she used to roam would now be replaced by concrete and towers. 
she also carried a great fear and nervousness for what might be on the other side. Would she have opportunity here? Would the oppressors she was used to at home evaporate in this new land? Would she be seen as human and not as another pawn? As Annie thought about her past and her future, she began to cry. The tears flowed from her eyes and down her cheeks. She couldn't stop them from flowing. She looked down at her bag and everything she had in it. With great courage, Annie took her sleeve over her hand, wiped her tears, gripped her bag and stepped forward. Name, the immigration officer ordered of Annie. Annie Moore, sir. From where, he demanded. Cork, Ireland. Age, 15. Are those two with you? Yes, sir. As the ink dried from the immigration officer's pen, Annie's name was set in history forever. She was the first person of 12 million people to pass through Ellis Island to enter the New World, as well as the first of the 3.5 million Irish to do so. As a result, Annie was taken into a room after her paperwork had been completed. Here, former Congressman John B. Weber placed a $10 gold piece in her pocket and wished her a Happy New Year. A Catholic chaplain blessed her and gave her a silver coin. The Irish security man in the room also gifted her five dollars. Annie was then taken from the room and into the waiting area. Here she heard a loud yell. The yell cried out. Annie, oh Annie. She looked over to see her parents running towards her. Engulfed in a large hug, the Moore family were back together again after all those years apart. Over the next few years, Annie became the face of immigration in America. Although at one point she was confused with another Annie Moore who had been born in America and married to a descendant of Daniel O'Connell. After this, Annie's face faded into the great concrete jungles of America.
She lived out her life in the Irish community of Manhattan's Lower East Side. She married a German-American who worked in a fish market and whilst happy, Annie's life was quite difficult and typical of the Irish immigrant at the time. She gave birth to 10 children, but only five of them lived past the age of three. Because of poor finances, the family could afford a plot for their dead children, but not a headstone. Thirty-two years after Annie arrived in America, she suffered a heart attack in 1924. She herself was buried in an unmarked grave in Queens. A fire on Ellis Island burnt the original records of Annie's arrival and she vanished into being just the story of another immigrant in America. That was until the Irish community rose to remember one of our own. The first of the 12 million who passed through the doors of Ellis Island. In 1997, the song Isle of Tears was released to remember Annie's life. The great Jean Reinhardt sculpted two statues of Annie and her brothers as children. One stands where she left in Cove, the other where she arrived on Ellis Island. Now, every year, the Irish American Cultural Institute presents an annual Annie Moore Award to an individual who has made significant contributions to the Irish and or Irish American community. The music for this episode was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was scripted and researched by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan Isanam Dunn, Gurav Mahakut, Slananish.